Let's do it. Welcome one, welcome all to episode 19 of the Xbox Expansion Pass recorded on February 16th, 2020. I am your host, Luke Lore, the Insipid Ghost. In this episode of XEP, we'll examine Project xCloud's expansion into iOS, Disney wanting to shop its IP, the ESA's E3 woes continue, and we'll offer initial impressions of Darksiders Genesis. Enjoy, guys. Yet another week of gaming news is upon us and behind us. Welcome to XEP, where we discuss all the goings-on of the Gamerverse as they pertain to the Xbox ecosystem. This week, before we begin, I must give a hearty and healthy shout-out to the Xbox Pope. At Xbox Pope on Twitter is one of the most prominent members of the Xbox community, and in the social media space, he shares his love for the brand, for the community, by spreading fan art throughout, by doing custom renders and custom designs of all different types of people, throughout the gaming verse and this past week he honored me he honored xep by designing an xbox series x inspired by xep using our color palette and logos he designed it and shared it out into his community we had a number of people comment and share it as well you can find it over on twitter on my header image and of course if you scroll my timeline at insipid ghost you'll find it there as well but also if you search him at xbox pope over on twitter you can find his work and he is an incredible artist an incredible designer uh, and it was an absolute honor to be included in that deluge of wonderful fan art on Friday. The fact that he thought of XCP in that level and on that level was truly an honor to me and I do thank you Xbox Pope and I encourage you guys to check it out because it was a wonderful treat uh, to see that absolutely made my week. And a bit of news that made quite a few people happy in this past week was the announcement that Project xCloud is expanding to iOS. Previously Project xCloud had been available on Android platforms only but had been expanding its regions and game catalog to 50 plus. Canada, the UK, all of those users getting to experience the wonder that is xCloud delivering on a promise that truthfully I was not sure they would be able to deliver on in such a wonderful manner thus far iOS users had been left out the initial flight seems to be taking a very timid and cautious approach to bringing those people into the xCloud ecosystem the initial slots were only 10,000 available only 10,000 iOS users were allowed into the project xCloud beta at first as they work the kinks out with both licensing agreements with Apple and with just making the technology work comfortably for all users as we've seen on Andro the Android flight. So 10,000 initial iOS users were only having access to one particular game, the Master Chief Collection. This was available in the US, UK, and Canada, and it filled up lightning fast. That's exciting to see. The participants needed an iPhone or an iPad running on iOS 13.0 or better. They had to have the gamer tag and the Xbox One controller and a data plan that supported the appropriate speed, which I believe was uh, 10 megabits, megabytes uh, down bandwidth. That's a pretty limited run by comparison to the Android users. Was it a good move? The answer is simply and definitively yes. Wonderful bit of news. And first, allowing only 10,000 users to enter, there's an air of exclusivity about it, uh, a rush for people to jump into something that's branded Xbox. And the first game they get to see, the only game they get to see, 
is the Master Chief Collection. The Master Chief Collection has come a long way from when it first launched, and it's now a pristine example of Xbox Legacy, which is something that is direly needed in the ecosystem overall. And it looks good, it plays well, it's impressive. So what do you get when you have a whole lot of people rushing for an exclusive spot into this? You have people sharing it. And then what are they sharing? Halo. In a world where we have Halo Infinite on the horizon, you now have a bunch of people excited about a product, excited about their slot in here, sharing Halo information, sharing impressions of both the technology and the game. And largely, from what I can tell and from what I have seen, a lot of the iOS users, whether they be journalistic or otherwise, are sharing positive things about xCloud and positive things about the Master Chief Collection. This would strike to be whether it was a 10,000 slot bit just to market well, or if it was simply just the licensing and the appropriation of technology to make sure it worked and worked well. It seems to have worked in Xbox's favor, and I'd have to imagine that users are quite pleased. It can't be long before they continue to open up more slots, before they continue to expand the gaming catalog, but with that, every time it happens, you get a new slew of, of news articles, the news cycle becomes dominated by your, by your brand, which in a year where we've got PlayStation's announcements on the horizon, the wonders about what, what's going to happen with E3, who's going to be where, announcement shows new consoles it seems smart to continue to occupy that new space and that mindshare of xbox being kind of in the forefront you can do that with game pass titles as they're added games with gold ps plus tend to get a new cycle here and there but it's not much so this new bit of xcloud seems to be smart and smartly timed or at the very least conveniently timed overall i'm very happy for my ios brethren to get to try out xcloud because it is a wonderful bit of technology. Unlike Android users though, iPhone users do not currently get to have Xbox console streaming, which is, a, which is a similar effect, but not the same technology. Again, I think this has to do with platform restrictions and what they're trying to make be the optimum experience in the various places. And the fact that it still says preview on that app, beta on that app, the fact that they are not rolling it out as a finished technology, brilliant, smart, and next to Stadia, at, yet again, here we bring up Stadia, I think we do, we've done every episode that xCloud comes up, xCloud's delivering on the promise that Stadia has not, and this is all good news when you're going into a new generation, where you have new consoles on the horizon, it's smart, it's great, I think we need to be happy for a lot of people on this realm, except for perhaps our Stadia users. Now the expansion of xCloud is good news, but the expansion of partnerships for Microsoft continues to be better news indeed, as Samsung, the Korean tech giant, announced a partnership with Xbox at their Unpacked event. The Korean tech giant partnerships with all types of companies, Netflix, Google, and now on the gaming side, Microsoft. Big news in that it wasn't Sony, it wasn't Nintendo, it wasn't Google Stadia. For Microsoft to be on the stage of Samsung's event is a big deal. Samsung on Tuesday, this past Tuesday I should say, revealed that it had a new flagship phone, the Galaxy S20, and it was a folding device which is getting a lot of attention, the Galaxy Z Flip. On that stage was the Xbox logo, branded and discussions of a premium cloud-based streaming experience for Samsung users that they are getting because they partnered with Xbox. That was a Samsung's director of strategy that, that stated those things. And this is perhaps another method of Microsoft trying to get the Xbox brand into a number of different markets. Of course, we know that Android with Project xCloud is being used and Samsung devices do operate with Android, and that's all well and good. But perhaps in partnering with a tech giant that is Asian-based like Samsung, which is a Korean company, we have another example of their methods for trying to enter, enter into Asian markets because we've seen previous attempts at bringing gaming with Xbox logos to the Japanese market continuously fail. 
Well, at XO19 and several months ago, we've seen a concerted effort to reattempt to enter into the Asian market by way of xCloud in India, by way of Crossfire X, which is a Korean-based shooter that is coming now to, to North America, so you might be able to blend those audiences, and with Kartrider Drift, a, a Korean-designed kart racer that is extremely popular worldwide and in the esports world as well. The partnership with Samsung makes incredible business sense because you can put that Xbox brand, you can install that Xbox app with comfort, it can be on display in stores. For it to be up on the stage is good news and smart, but it also opens up doorways on the business side to other markets outside of North America, outside of the UK, which is, again, Another method, another example of Microsoft's game being to access screens via something other than hardware. Microsoft has always been a software company at its core. Partnering with other companies that do a good job of bringing technology to people, that's a good thing. And you have to imagine that once again, those Azure cloud servers are serving them well on the business side, at the negotiation table. We've, we've seen some companies like Sony come up to Microsoft and talk about Azure, and now you're having Samsung taking advantage of premium cloud-based streaming services. You gotta think that Azure is serving them quite well, and that goes to heart with what it was that Phil Spencer said, I believe, last week when he said, other companies haven't done what we've done. We've developed or put tens of billions of dollars into this cloud technology. He doesn't wanna be in an argument over format wars when it comes to Sony and Nintendo. Seems to me that this is yet another small piece of fruit bearing from that tree overall. It's smart, it seems to make sense, and you gotta love the direction that it's going in. Now for a bit of news that I neglected to mention in last week's episode. Rod Ferguson has left the coalition, developers of Gears of War, in favor of going to Blizzard to take over and work with the Diablo franchise. Now this echoes the move that Mikey Barra made a few months back and it certainly seems to say that Blizzard is working to bring back its Diablo franchise. But what does this mean for Microsoft and what does this mean for the coalition for Gears of War? I have made absolutely no bones about it. I have loved Gears of War 5. I think it's a fantastic example of the apex of what Gears can be can be doing in its current form and in its current state. And while it critically did very well, as did Gears 4, commercially did very well, as did Gears 4, the staying power of the Gears of War franchise has waned in recent years, falling away from its peak point in perhaps Gears of War 3. There's got to be something done with that franchise overall, and I have to wonder if Rod Ferguson, with his immense talent, headed over to Blizzard won't be a good news, good news, good news for both and all parties involved. Rod is incredibly talented at guiding franchises, but perhaps a fresh take and moving over to Diablo will do something special for Diablo 4, kind of get their messaging with fans back on track, all the while allowing the coalition to perhaps take gears in a new direction because that mindshare has faded in recent years. Maybe it was the pressure of having to carry the exclusive catalog for gears in the AAA sense for, for Xbox Game Studios, I should say. Maybe it was simply that gears doesn't stick with people the way it once did. It isn't due for a reinvention and due for more work, and that's something that pains me to say because, as I stated, I absolutely loved Gears of War 5. But Gears is due for a refresh, and perhaps this move works out for all involved. I certainly hope it does, and I wish Rod well. I have made no bones about it. I've never once shied away from telling the story that I don't think I've actually told the story. Gears of War quite literally saved my life at one point at rock bottom. And so I have a special affinity for that franchise. So I very much wish the best for Rod Ferguson. I thank him for what he did for Gears, for the Coalition, for Microsoft and Xbox. And I hope and that he does all those same things over with Blizzard and Diablo because that's a franchise I'm, I, I enjoy. And I'm looking forward to Diablo 4. I like the darker tones that they are taking there. 
E3 2020 woes continue as Jeff Keighley, the prominent Game Awards organizer and host, has announced that he will not be running E3 coverage in 2020, stating, quote, Given what has been publicly communicated about E3 plans for 2020, I just don't feel comfortable participating in the show at this time. End quote. Now, Jeff Keighley is a wonderful industry icon who connects a number of voices throughout the gaming verse and brings so many wonderful things to gamers. For him to abstain from E3, with Sony from abstaining from E3, I think it's fair to say that the ESA has done gamers a disservice and it's time for them to reform, re reforge themselves into something very different. Gamescom and PAX have proven to be successful industry events that showcase games in a more prominent and better way than what E3 has done. And there is no, I have no qualms in saying that E3 as we once knew it is dead, needs to die, and needs to go away. Sony not spending the money, abstaining from being there, will control their own media event. And I would imagine we see Jeff Keighley in that media event, all things considered. But Microsoft also, they have their own facility on site with the Xbox Microsoft Theater. They're able to control their own security, have their own event, their own show floor where they can put up games that they know, it can handle traffic there. I would imagine that Microsoft is, is quite comfortable in saying they are part of E3 or not, and they can adapt accordingly. This year, they are part of it, and ESA, for their part, tried to save some face by announcing 10 big companies that are still attending E3. And they listed Xbox, Nintendo, Ubisoft, Take-Two, among kind of their big, prominent gaming-verse people there. Now, I know Warner Brothers games will be there, Bandai Namco, I would imagine Sega and Capcom are still strongly in favor of showing off their tech there but e3 esa it's time to stop it's time to go it's time to change you've got to reforge in order to survive it was a big blow when sony stepped out for jeff Keeley, a voice that is so powerful to abstain as well it's time to simply change. You have to do it. I do not any longer understand the mecca that some gamers try to take in going to E3. I respect it. I know that it once held a huge nostalgic value, but I don't think it's what it once was. And there's nothing wrong with acknowledging that change is good. For all the things we've seen Microsoft and Xbox do in order to change and adapt its business model, E3 needs to do the same thing. Gamescom has done it. PAX has done it. It's time now for E3 to do the same. Let the past die and reforge it into something better. There's nothing wrong with that. ESA woes continue. There was another leak on their website. It's it's just frustrating to watch. There's a lot of mishandling for attendees' personal information last year. You have to imagine journalists, journalist sites, sites like IGN and GameSpot, have to be wondering if it's worth the money to get in as it gets more expensive every year. I, I just don't see it as necessary when press releases are what they are. When HD video comes out in, in such comfortable ways, does an on-site person need to be there any longer? I personally absolutely adored my experience in going to Xbox FanFest. I loved being there in that controlled room in a, in a place where... I was able to go onto a show floor. It wasn't super crowded. But in my two hours walking around E3 last year, I was ready to get out and get back to a place where I could put hands on games more quickly without it being scattered around, without being bombarded with non-gaming related things like energy drinks. So it goes, though. We'll see what happens at E3 2020 this year. Lots of news on par for it. Uh, new game announcements, I'm sure. We got the PS5 and Xbox Series X bringing plenty of games like Godfall, uh, Hellblade 2, like the recently announced Outriders from People Can Fly. Very excited to see what that has to offer what that's going to be i'm sure we'll see more about that at e3 and i am i'm stoked for that aspect of it i'm stoked for the announcements and the stage shows for microsoft but again that's at their theater it's not the same and jeff Keeley, i have a feeling we're gonna see him at a sony event far less likely he would be at an e3 event for xbox possible but unlikely <laughs>
Now here's a bit of encouraging news for those who enjoy Star Wars and Marvel games. Disney has announced that they want people to come in and play with their IP. Sean Shoptaw, who is Disney's Senior Vice President of Games and Interactive Experiences, was talking to people at the 2020 DICE Summit, and he said, quote, We want to tap into the power of creatives across the industry. I'm here for one reason, to empower you to do really unique things with our catalog, end quote. Now, of course, Disney is a money-making company, and they make no bones about it. He cited Jedi Fallen Order and Spider-Man as two recent Disney IPs, if you can think of them in that, that perspective, that had seen standout successes. Marvel Spider-Man, which is, of course, a PlayStation exclusive, was the fastest-selling exclusive in gaming history for a superhero game. Uh, and as of July last year, it had sold more than 13.2 million copies. That is insane. For an exclusive superhero game to sell that many copies is insane. Now, of course, it's gone through price reductions and DLC releases. Doesn't matter. That's a lot of people playing Spider-Man. And it is a great game, deservedly so. So I like that it's pushing Disney to realize, hey, we should put more money and more investment into making hardcore, impressive gaming experiences. For its part, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order was the fastest selling digital launch for a Star Wars game and sold more than 8 million copies as of January this year. So a non-exclusive game went on to sell 8 million copies in a far shorter and smaller window of time. This has to be encouraging on a couple levels. First, you have to imagine that Disney IP won't go the exclusive route any longer uh, because, simply put, you can sell more games in in more places faster, uh, for sure. Uh, The Spider-Man property will stay exclusive to to Sony, and that makes perfect sense, but with 13.2 million next to 8 million in a shorter window of time across more devices, you have to wonder what, what the numbers crunching therein will be. But I like this. This is good news. And Mr. Moody wrote in. Mr. Glorious One wrote in and said, So Disney are asking developers to pitch games and their massive IP from their massive IP collection. What would you like to see someone do with one of Disney's IP? For me, something with Die Hard or Alien or Predator. What say you? Now, Mr. Moody is, of course, talking about games that are under the Fox license, which is in a recent Fox merger with Disney, have now become Disney properties. Uh, And I have to say, I I like where his head is at with Alien and Predator. I don't know why or what purpose anyone really want with Die Hard there, Mr. Moody, given that I think Die Hard is a nostalgic brand, but with all the recent movies, it never seemed to catch on with more modern audiences. The way that Star Wars, the way that even Predator has, goodness, that's that's a stretch to say the least. Now, Let's let's break this down a bit. Disney has done an incredible job at selling properties in the mobile space. Spider-Man and Jedi Fallen Order taught them that the console space can be pretty darn impressive. More diversity in the Star Wars and Marvel licenses is something that I want and I already see happening. I think I've talked on many an episode about how I want Rogue Squadron games, how I want more Marvel games to explore different heroes uh, and different gameplay styles. I want that. That is already happening. As far as the Predator is concerned, they are in desperate need of a good game. That PS4 exclusive one, that looks set to die from launch. It looks DOA, dead on arrival. Why they would make that game exclusive and not cross-play, cross-platform, is a bit surprising to me That because it isolates the fan base of Predator and PlayStation in such a way that I don't... I don't I don't see that as a big win. I don't know why they would do that. It seems like they were just willing to take the first exclusive money that came to them. Uh, But Predator is such a unique and cool character. I would love to see more explored in that universe. The AVP game that came out for the Xbox 360 was a pretty decent experience. You played as a human, an alien, and a Predator, and they each had their own campaigns. That was a cool experience that I think more could have been done with, had more time and polish been put into it. We know that Alien Isolation came out. That's, again, sort of tangentially in the same universe, but not. It just depends on, on where you look in the timelines. But I would have liked to see more exploration in the Predator-verse. Show me a good, solid Predator game 
that explores more than just this 4v1 combat that we're getting on that PS4 exclusive. So that's one of them. I think I've talked many, many times about a repurpose of Disney Infinity. Disney Infinity had incredible assets and a lot of really great gameplay elements that if released in a digital-only form might offer something special for gamers to check out. So I really want people that are willing to explore the Disney IP mergers, the Disney IP collections. I do want more Star Wars games from, from the Disney Infinity level of, of interest all the way up to the very serious Jedi Fallen Order. I do want more Marvel properties shown off there. But beyond, beyond that, I think it's important that Disney does a good job at bringing games to popular franchises like Aladdin, like The Lion King. We talk about those Sega and Super Nintendo games so often in the Gamerverse in a nostalgic sense. Why are we not exploring that in, in a more modern sense, showing that they can be small experiences? There's nothing wrong with a $20 title that releases onto multi-platforms and is simply a, a platformer in that realm. And in bringing those IP to the forefront, you have to imagine that more people will want to explore different methods of communicating in the VR space, in the mobile space. And I think that's why we saw this, this announcement at DICE, at a summit for people that make and work on games. Sean Shoptaw is out there to make money. But I think this could be a big benefit for those who are interested in more Disney properties seeing the light of day in the gaming space outside of just the traditional stuff. Time now to talk about my initial impressions of two particular games, one of them being Bleeding Edge. The beta came out this past weekend for Game Pass users, and the game proper comes out on March 24th. On Game Pass, it is a budget title from Ninja Theory, and man, am I confused about how to discuss it with you. I've tried over tens of 20 of times trying to figure out how to express to the audience on, a, on an audio podcast just what Bleeding Edge is and just what I feel about it, and I am dead set in the middle in the I don't know if I like it or not category. I've played two plus hours of it, I've played with friends, I've played solo, and I just don't know what the game is. For its part, I will try to describe it. It's a 4v4 melee combat hero shooter, and that's a lot of buzzwords for you. The characters involved, it's got a beautiful art aesthetic, I'll tell you that. Beautiful art aesthetic that seems to echo a Borderlands meets Mad Max. It's sort of even got Battleborn vibes in it, which could be good or tragic, who knows. But the characters look really cool. Not only is there a lot of diversity in their presentation, gender-based and, and racial-based, but also in the array of skills. And I like that. There's a lot of diversity in the characters. Some of them are very robotic-heavy. Some of them have augmented limbs. You have a, a, somebody who's walking around in samurai outfit using swords you have a character named gizmo who's throwing down mechanical turrets and can turn into a mech herself with a chain gun healers seem to play a hugely important role in this game which I, I found that when we had a healer on the team who was dedicated to keeping the team together and dedicated to keeping us healthy, we were having a lot of fun. But the moment communication broke down, you'd get slaughtered by the other team. And that was zero fun. It seems like you cannot survive on your own in this 4v4 game if you're split off in a one versus two scenario. It's very hard to survive in some cases. There were a lot of characters developed in the, or shown in the beta, and that's encouraging. There's a lot of ways to play. But the ways that they teach the player to play don't seem very evident. The tutorial was Long and confusing and a bit muddled. Uh, I did not enjoy the when we started up a game with friends or not. It's very unclear what the actual objective was. Is it to kill the enemy team, capture certain points? Do you carry something from one place to another? Uh, the game, it's it's so frustrating to try to talk about because I had a lot of fun in small segments of time with friends, and by myself, I absolutely hated it. So I'm unsure how the game will be received. Will it develop kind of a small niche cult following where people really get invested into that community and they're just over there doing their thing, similar to like Paladins? You know, you've got the Overwatch community, but then the Paladins community is quite happy. Will Bleeding Edge nick away and have its own thing? I don't know. It is a strange 
game to try to describe, to try to put on display can get very hectic. I'm not sure what's going on half the time. If I've got my character that I like, I'm, I'm enjoying myself more. But if I'm not playing with friends, I'm not enjoying myself at all. So I don't know really where Bleeding Edge is going to land, but I do keep in mind a couple things. One, Ninja Theory is now an Apex level developer with Hellblade 1 being the massive hit that it was, Hellblade 2 on its way to looking like it's going to be just incredible. This is a passion project from a smaller portion of that Ninja Theory team, and creativity and diversity in a studio and in a creative mind space are a good thing to be encouraged. So I really appreciate I like that. I also like that we're no longer talking about Bleeding Edge as this Xbox carrying ex exclusive. That, I think that mentality is what damned State of Decay. I think it's what damaged Crackdown 3 and Sea of Thieves when they had to launch in a, a weak year for Xbox. They were meant to carry this exclusive catalog. Bleeding Edge doesn't seem to be suffering that burden as well. And that is a very good thing. As far as whether or not the game will do well, I have no idea, guys. It looks so cool when you share clips. And then you play it and sometimes it is that cool and other times it's just tragically not. So we'll see where it goes. Tell me what you thought. If you played the Bleeding Edge beta, will you let me know what you think? Because I have no clue whether or not it is worth your time or not beyond just checking it out initially. The good news is, again, budget and available on Game Pass from day one. So you're not going to break the bank trying it and checking it out. Now to discuss a game that I have been very excited for the console launch, Darksiders Genesis, a game from Airship Syndicate in the Darksiders universe serving as a prequel to Darksiders 1. I personally really do enjoy the Darksiders franchise with 1 and 3 being my favorites. What is Darksiders Genesis? If you're unfamiliar, it is an isometric hack and slash combat game that will initially when you look at it, echo of Diablo. I think a lot of people are, are comparing it to Diablo and thinking, oh, this is like Diablo. In fact, after first glance, it is not like Diablo. If you are first jumping into it, the color palette is bright, it's exciting, a lot of heaven and hell aesthetic, a lot of, it's all about the war between heaven and hell and how humanity can be caught in between. You play as two of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Specifically, specially noted is that Strife is available for the first time in the Darksiders franchise, along with War, the protagonist of the first game. Now, War, for his Part will play identical to how he plays in Darksiders 1, but the viewpoint, again, as I said, is isometric, whereas the other games are third person. So for the viewpoint to change and it to still feel like a Darksiders game is, I would argue, a big win for the franchise and for the game overall. There's a lot more platforming than you might get in a Diablo game. It seems to mimic the controls and play style of Darksiders overall there. The platforming is fun, although a bit frustrating with camera angles. Co-op is an absolute blast. I've been playing with Mr. Babbitt. We've been streaming and doing coverage there. And I know for his part over on his Patreon, he's going to do a Road to Greatness episode that'll be free for everybody, where we discuss Darksiders Genesis on video on YouTube. So you can follow him at Mr. Babbitt on Twitter. I've been very much enjoying it. The combat is excellent. You can upgrade your abilities as you go. You can augment them with different cores that you pick up. Playing as Strife is very different than playing as War, who plays, you know, hack and slash style, whereas Strife has guns that he can shoot from a distance or get in with a melee set. The two characters are funny. They talk to each other the entire time, War being very, very serious and Strife being funny and reminds me quite a bit of Cade 6, both in appearance and in attitude. So if you're a Destiny fan, you'll get some Cade Six vibes there, uh, and that's a good time. I I think this game is wonderful. It's a forty dollar budget title from Airship Syndicate, and it has a lot to offer 
in the gameplay verse. I think a lot of people will dive in and have a good old time with it, but it is not without quite a few flaws that befuddle me and that they've not fixed them, given that the game did launch on PC and Stadia a while back. Uh, it lacks a clear direction for the objective. Levels are ripe with things to find and explore and many objectives, but the mapping is terrible. It is extremely difficult to figure out where you are supposed to go for primary objectives. Where are you supposed to go to accomplish the goal of the level? That is confusing. That is muddled. And I think it was done in a sense to encourage exploration, but in fact, it becomes more of a frustration. The level's beautiful and cool. There's a lot of stuff to explore and find. But when I, as a gamer, do not know where to go, what to do, I get very frustrated, particularly on a stream or in co-op when I'm just trying to hang out with my buddies and, and, and chat and turn my brain off. The map being as bad as it is is frustrating. The lack of clear kind of a menu of showing you where to go or, or just an indicator on screen saying, hey, go this general direction. That would be very appreciated, and it's not there. And you have to imagine this feedback existed during the Stadia launch, during the PC launch, even for that small number of people who checked it out. Why would they not fix that? Why would they not adjust that? Another odd, strange qualm is the amount of dialogue for the lore. If it were a cutscene, I think it would make more sense, but there's too much dialogue in the lore, even though it's interesting for someone like me who enjoys story. It's a lot to go through, a lot to read, even though it's voice acted. It's a lot to read and follow, and it's just comic book style animations it's it's a bit of a mixed bag you're very much getting a game that is right down the middle in terms of super fun gameplay you're gonna have a blast with it it's gonna look super cool particularly if you enjoy the heaven hell war aesthetic i will say also this game begs 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 for more than just two-player co-op I can't tell you how many times I'd be playing with Mr. Babbitt. We've been going through, and I would think, all right, if we could just get one or two more horsemen in here. There are four total. You have to imagine that's the direction they're going for Darksiders 4. Why are we not being able to play as Fury? Why are we not being able to play as Death? We only have war and strife in this game. And there are a lot of lore reasons for that, but who cares? Who cares? Find a way around it. Get me some DLC. This should be three, four-player co-op. Having a blast with it. Two players is great. It is, that is the most fun way to play this game, but... Come on, get four players in there. There's no there's no reason not to. There is no reason not to. Make it happen. Goodness gracious. Overall, you're going to have more to come. I am going to continue streaming it over on Mixer at Mixer.com slash InsipidGhost, and I will be putting out a number of different types of coverage in the Twitterverse as well. I'm loving it. I'm digging it. There's a lot to enjoy about it, but it is certainly not perfect, and it is begging for some polish. Now we move on to listener mail, and we had quite a few questions written in, and I've got quite a few answers for those wonderful people. We will begin this week with Edward Varnell at The Retro Code, who wrote in, and he said, Would Xbox games hold more value if they were cartridge-based, or do they need a limited run treatment for their physical wares to be cared for and purchased? Edward, great question. Of course, we see a lot of limited run stuff for Nintendo and Sony products that tend to get quite a bit of attention. We've even seen some of the Star Wars games be created by limited run for Game Boy and NES. Simply put, in the Xbox space, no. It's an apple and oranges approach, unfortunately. Nintendo and Sony have a legacy that goes back very far on a strong basis in hardware, whereas Xbox really doesn't have that same legacy. As Microsoft has always been a software company by nature, their Xbox brand tends to do quite a bit of the same thing here. Uh, they could go to limited run and say, hey, we'd love a limited run of, of, of Halo or Viva Pinata, maybe the Fable games, and you get casing, that con content for it, but I don't think you're going to get a lot of people that are really into the physical side of Xbox stuff, at least in the game sense. Do you really want a disc of Halo, again, when it's available in so many places? I don't think a lot of people would go for that. Consider the Hyperkin Duke remake. I bought it. I love it. It's beautiful. It sits on my shelf. I don't touch it. 
You know, that, that was a legacy type thing in the hardware space because that Hyperkin Duke controller was so terrible and yet it's an icon amongst Xbox fans of old. So maybe, maybe that's a, a sense that you could go with, but as far as cartridges and discs for games, no, Microsoft's always been a, a software company and their hardware has always been a catalyst to that software. I don't think they have the same type of legacy that a Nintendo or a Sony might bring to a limited run type approach. Another question this week coming in from Bill Coniglio. He says, Marvel's Avengers character models. Atrocious, unbothered, part of me thinks they launch with poverty versions to steer players towards better DLC versions down the line, considering the game seems to be geared towards a gameplay loop of repeated plays. Bill, you bring up a good point. You bring up some interesting things. I would agree with you that some of the character models are quite ugly in the game, and they appear to gather, they appear though that they are gathering feedback on a lot of that, and they have been adjusting them in subtle ways. I thought Black Widow was particularly offensive to look at early on when we first saw the game, but they have there have been some subtle redesigns in, in, in a few of them, and some just minor adjustments that tend to make it a little less jarring to look at. But I also think that a lot of the reason that we were so initially bothered by their appearances is we were so close to Endgame and to Infinity War and to climactic moments of the Marvel MCU. So in the Gamerverse, we were expecting something very similar. As the delay has given time to polish and improve those aspects, we're also further away from that MCU-verse uh, and, and the initial run of Avengers there. So maybe it's a little less jarring when it, when it first launches or, la or later launches down the line. Now, as far as them purposely making ugly versions, I don't think that's their intention. I do think the game is steering itself towards a DLC strategy with costumes and appearances. I just don't think that their goal was to make the, the first versions ugly. Uh, they seemed caught off guard by that response. They, it, they, there were a couple quotes that came out from the team that said they weren't ready and they weren't expecting people to be like, ugh, ugly. I, th I think there's a, there's a little bit of truth there, but, but accidental truth. I'm very excited to see more costumes. I do want a lot of them to be unlockable in-game. I don't want to be paying an arm and a foot for a game that's already full price. I don't want to be paying extra money in microtransactions for it. They need to find a way to get that pricing model and structure down to where it suits us to buy costumes, to earn costumes, to make our characters look the way we want. I doubt you'll get Robert Downey Jr.'s face in there. But who cares if they've got an Iron Man mask on? You can make a Captain America that echoes very similar to an MCU that people want uh, or a comic book version that people want and it not be that without their likenesses because it's Captain America. He wears a helmet. So there's a way to approach it, a way not to. But I don't think they initially made them ugly on purpose. I think they were caught off guard. I do want to see DLC and I do want to see that strategy come to fruition in a way that respects the gamer and their wallet. Our last question this week comes from Todd Oxtra. He says, I am super impressed with Ninja Theory's ability to nail different genres after seeing Hellblade and now the Bleeding Edge beta. What other studios would you like to see spread their wings and try out new genres or gameplay mechanics? Mm, that's a great question, Todd. Now, I, I took your question to be Xbox specific, so I only looked at Xbox Game Studios, and the first one that I would bring up is The Coalition. We talked about Rod Ferguson leaving the studio and what that might mean for it. I think Gears needs a reboot and a, a refresh of ideas in order to keep Gears relevant in the gamer space. They need to take a break after Gears Tactics. The Coalition is ripe and full of talent. I would like to see them develop a sub-team similar to how Ninja Theory and Obsidian have done that pushes creativity amongst the group and maybe brings new ideas. So I, I want to see that talent put to good use, even if it is a budget bleeding edge style, a budget grounded style that, that Obsidian's making there. I would like the Coalition to spread their wings just a bit and do something a little different that might help refresh ideas for the gear space. Also bears mentioning that Undead Labs, the makers of State of Decay, they announced the Juggernaut edition of State of Decay 2, which is going to be coming to Steam. 
as well as be releasing onto the Xbox space, refining a lot of the visuals and cleaning up a lot of the bugs. Something that State of Decay is uh, endearingly known for is their jank. But this shows kind of on the user side, the influx of cash and talent that Microsoft brought to Undead Labs when they were fully purchased, coming to fruition, kind of bringing a climactic moment and the best case scenario version of State of Decay 2 before State of Decay 3 really gets the ball rolling. I like that. I'd love to see Undead Labs continue to expand, maybe show something in the State of Decay universe that's not gameplay-wise the same thing. That'd be really cool to see uh, because creativity amongst your teams and in your studios allows for more flexibility in pitching new ideas, and I would like to see that continue to be fostered. One thing that Microsoft has not shied away from is pushing that three teams per studio approach, which is good news. You have to wonder what Compulsion Games is going to be working on. You know, We have We Happy Few, but what else do they got really in the hopper? Because We Happy Few disappointed. Compulsion is certainly a talented developer. What are we going to do there? The often rumored Fable game from Playground, I mean, they're, they're the Forza Horizon developers, where we don't know what's happening on the Forza uh, Space 4 playground. As talented as they are at building worlds, what could they do outside of racing, even if it's not Fable? But my end-all answer to, to this question is Coalition. They've got the talent. They need new ideas. They need fresh things. If, as much as I love Gears 5, and I do, I love Gears 5. It need, it needs it needs new they need new ideas simply put no doubt about it great question guys thank you to all of you who wrote in you can find me on Twitter at insipidghost and write in your questions there or email me insipidghost at gmail.com you can find me streaming over on Mixer at mixer.com/insipidghost where I've been playing a lot of Zombie Army 4 playing a lot of Darksiders Genesis of course plenty of Star Wars Battlefront 2 super excited for their new co-op content to cover original trilogy stuff. Uh, it's weird, man. What a great time of year to catch up on Backlog and play the smaller AA games and the indie games that, that we're so excited for. I've got HyperDot sitting kind of in my hard drive ready for me to check out. I'm excited to do that. I just haven't done that yet. Thank you again to all of you who listen, who rate, and all that jazz for podcast stuff. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Take care, guys. 